Welcome to today's case file, Monster, Jesse Lee McFadden. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. As we delve into the dark depths of this horrifying case of the Henrietta Mass murders, our focus is on the true monster, a man whose name sends shivers down the spines of those who know his heinous deeds, Jesse Lee McFadden. Our story unfolds in the heart of an American city steeped in history, where tales of cowboys and pioneers resonate throughout the streets. But beneath the nostalgic facade lies a sinister presence that emerges from the shadows. Welcome to Henrietta, a small town nestled in Okmulgee County, Oklahoma, with a population just over 5,600. This state, often referred to as the Bible Belt, is unfortunately notorious for being one of the largest strongholds of the Ku Klux Klan, or KKK. Oklahoma ranked a dismal 43rd out of the 50 states in terms of livability, paints a troubling picture with statistics such as 48th in healthcare and education a disheartening tie for first place in unemployment, and a concerning 43rd in crime and corrections. Despite ranking fourth in incarceration rates, it holds distressing titles of ninth in rape and 12th in violent crime. Moreover, allegations of corruption plague both the city and county, as Oklahoma was recently ranked as the 11th most corrupt state. It seems that this tumultuous environment provides a fertile breeding ground for the likes of Jesse Lee McFadden. Prepare yourselves as we journey into the twisted psyche of our central figure. McFadden is not only a murderer, but also a registered sex offender and rapist. Despite a laundry list of red flags in his behavior, encounters with law enforcement, and entanglements with the legal system, the state of Oklahoma and the Oklahoma Department of Corrections allowed him to step out of the prison walls, instilling in him a sense of untouchability and even empowerment Unsurprisingly, McFadden's behavior remained unchanged, if not more insidious, even during his time behind bars. And then a shocking turn of events, a murder-suicide that claimed the lives of five innocent children. As the state deflects blame, citing the lack of support and an overburdened justice system, a dark cloud of corruption hovers over the investigation, leaving the survivors and victims' families to shoulder the responsibilities that should rightfully belong to state officials, law enforcement, and legislators. Join us as we deep dive the chilling details of this homegrown Oklahoma monster, Jesse Lee McFadden. Mm-hmm.
As we continue our descent into the depths of this chilling narrative, we now shift our focus to the life of the monster himself, Jesse Lee McFadden. Born into a world cloaked in secrecy and shadows, Jesse emerged onto the stage of Wichita, Kansas, a city whose foundation rested on the remnants of a Native American village, a tapestry woven with trade and promise. It was on that fateful day, August 24, 1983, that a Virgo came into existence. Diddle did the world know of the sinister destiny that lay in wait for this troubled soul. Raised by his young mother, LaDonna Jean McFadden, in the absence of a father figure whose identity remained shrouded in mystery, Jesse's path would become entangled with the dark recesses of human nature. A legacy was set in motion, one that would forever haunt the annals of true crime history. As we delve deeper into the intricate web of the McFadden family, we uncover their journey from Wichita, Kansas to McAllister, Oklahoma, a town steeped in the ancestral heritage of the McFadden lineage nestled within the boundaries of Pittsburgh County. It was here at 9041 Redbird Drive LaDonna sought a sense of permanence, a place to call home. However, this dwelling, often deemed unsuitable for raising a family, would become the backdrop of McFadden's upbringing, shaping the course of his and his brother's Cody McFadden's lives. You will learn about McFadden, a true monster that haunted the lives of many. We'll explore the chilling psychology behind his crimes and unravel the intricate web of forensic connections that built his criminal profile. We'll delve into the disturbing motivations behind sexual assault and murder, examining the patterns of behavior that define a monster. Discover the significance of criminal signatures and the clues they leave behind. Learn unique insights into the criminal mind as we analyze the organization and methodology employed by McFadden. Get ready for a mind-bending exploration to the depths of human darkness that will leave you questioning what truly makes a monster. This is the story of a monster, a convicted rapist, a registered sex offender, and a predator haunted and hunted the unsuspecting. Let's begin by unmasking our monster. What do we know about McFadden and his early childhood? We know that when um, shortly after McFadden was born, that his mom moved from Wichita, Kansas, which is where a majority of their family was. Well, I say a majority. They actually had a large portion of family in both the Kansas area and also in Oklahoma. So not too long after he was born, they moved from Wichita to Oklahoma. And they have some pretty big lineage in, in both areas. When LaDonna moved to McAllister, she moved to the address that, you know, that we're all aware of. And if you have the opportunity to look at pictures of that address, I encourage you because the visual just kind of, and, and actually it's the picture on the cover of our episode. So <laughs> you can even look at that. But he was raised in a place where a lot of people feel like it was unsuitable for raising a child. And what do we know about what LaDonna was doing at that age? Like, how was she making money? I don't know how she was making money, but she was a single parent. So she was having to work as a single parent, which isn't easy. The reason why I asked that question is because she makes a comment about McFadden's dad when McFadden asks her about his father. And she says that she met him on a corner. Off of what he told me, I was always under the impression that he never knew his father. He was never around and also didn't know who he was. I remember at one point being curious about if he had ever even heard from him in his life. 
And I know he had asked LaDonna some questions about how they met and how old she was. Because as far as he told me, the only information he ever knew is that he was much older than she was at the time. How did he explain to you that he met her? Uh, When I had asked questions, I don't know if it was that next weekend or at some point he had a visit in prison with his mom. She came to visit him and he asked her how they met. And he did give me ages. I'm not sure if I remember (laughs) exactly how old she said that she was and he was. But I guess her first reaction was that she laughed about it and said that she met him on the corner. (laughs) 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 But Jesse, and this is in a letter, this is how he communicated this to me. So, you know, I just read this piece of paper, but then he goes on to say, Oh, and then she told me about the story and about how they met and that he thought it was cute. Uh, That was the word that he used. And then he had made a joke about how his mother said that his dad was a pervert. And it seemed as if the way that he worded it, she was trying to basically uh, pick on him or indicate that he was also a pervert. And the reason why I bring that up is because one of the causes of sexual deviance is from inappropriate exposure to sex at a young age. McFadden had a brother that was born five years after him. So Cody Ray McFadden was born five years later. And we know that he's told people that, that he has dated in the past that his mom always had a bunch of strange men in the home um, that they were exposed to. You know, that's a strong possibility, honestly. So, yeah, one, one of the things that caused people to be more sexually deviant has to do with either sexual abuse at a young age, whether, you know, he was sexually abused at a young age or whether he was exposed to sex at a young age, whether it was watching someone else have sex or something like that or being exposed to pornography. That all can lead to these deviations in sex. We do have a lot of research that that does confirm that when you're raised in an environment that, you know, like we're talking about, that that can definitely play into somebody being a sexual predator later in life. Another thing that they associate with being a sexual predator is also a propensity for burglary. There's a high correlation between people who burglarize and people who later become sexual offenders. It's actually really interesting because you're taking something that isn't yours. <laughs> so that actually makes a lot of sense, truthfully. And, that, and that's really critical in this situation with McFadden because one of his first crimes that we know of is a burglary of his grandfather. Yeah. The first crime that he's charged for. Right. That's true. Yeah. I wanted to kind of talk about his lineage a little bit. McFadden has family members, last name McFadden, last name Pugh, last name Stipe, as in the former Senator Stipe of Oklahoma, and they are related. So he also has Indian in him, and I actually was a little bit surprised about this because I thought it was just Cody because we know that Cody is a Sioux Indian, but the McFaddens actually have Indian in their lineage, as did Senator Stipe as well. 
something interesting to note. Some other things is there is also some walkers in their family. And there is a walker in the family who was one of the leaders of the Freemasons. So, you know, he's got a very diverse kind of family lineage. So I just, you know, wanted you guys to have that background to kind of understand that. I don't know how close LaDonna was with her family in those early years. Like, I don't know the circumstances of that. We have been told by, you know, multiple people that knew both, you know, Jesse McFadden and his brother Cody McFadden. And we've heard that at certain points in times that they had like this regular relationship where little brother wanted to be like big brother. And then we've also heard that they had a very strained relationship, especially like more towards like the teen years. How was Cody's relationship with McFadden? They didn't have one in his adulthood. Jesse had always been incarcerated and honestly, 80% of the time, so was Cody. So of course their communication was limited. I do not believe you can write another prisoner at another prison. prison. Uh, So there's that aspect. And then, you know, Cody, there were just things about him mentally and, and other things just in regards to his personality and things he would do and act that made him difficult to have a relationship with. So I don't think it's that Jesse disliked him. He seemed like a hard person to to love. And the reason that that makes a lot of sense to me is because, and I know that we've talked about this before, but McFadden was left home alone a lot while his mom worked or was out of the home for whatever reason. He was kind of parenting himself and parenting his brother. Um, Obviously, that's not ever a good thing. Um, And sometimes people are forced to do that. So he was considered like a latchkey kid, both of them. And being that his brother's five years younger, of course, he's kind of left to parent his brother. And something that we know happens with sexual predators is this kind of comes up early on in life. And whether it's seen or like with his mom and you know, some of these guys that they say, you know, were were coming in and out of the home or they're observing things that they, you know, view as normal, whatever the case, we do know that typically there's molestation of a sibling. Kind of viewing their lives as they get older and seeing how they were when they were younger. I really do feel like um, there's a very high probability that McFadden sexually assaulted Cody. And we'll kind of go through that later as we get more into when, you know, McFadden's older. But something that happened very early on when they were younger was, you know, around the age of 16, McFadden was supposed to be in the ninth grade. And this is something that we don't have record of, of him actually ever being in the ninth grade. We do have record of him at least going to the fifth grade, fifth or sixth grade. And he was going to Indianola Uh, middle school which is a small school there in the area and somewhere around 16 years old there's a girl that that alleges that on the bus when she was in the sixth grade that he sexually assaulted her and this came out after everything came out you know after the murders took place and the girl heard about crystal strong's assault because she actually didn't know that it had occurred And so she called Crystal and was like, hey, he assaulted me on the bus when I was in sixth grade. 
and he threatened to kill me if I told anybody. So she said, but I did go home and I told my mom and then my mom had a conversation with LaDonna and LaDonna like squashed it and, you know, and probably said something like, you know, hey, he's 16. Can we keep this under wraps? This is the first time this has ever happened. I don't know what the conversation was. Boys will be boys. Whatever it was. It, you know, that was swept under the rug. And one of the things that the girl told Crystal was that, you know, her family was kind of like, we're not ever going to speak of this again. We're going to keep this hidden. This is going to be a, a secret of ours. That's a major sign of a sexual predator at a very young age. The fact that he was attracted or pursuing children that were below his age group is an indicator of a sexual predator at a young age. And control. I think that it's also symbolic of the need to be controlling as well because a lot of times you're trying to control somebody who you feel is vulnerable or younger or really I'll say vulnerable, not even so much younger, but, but more vulnerable and obviously somebody younger would be. And, you know, and even hearing how that occurred makes me wonder if that wasn't even the first incident because of his threat. So it makes me feel like based on behaviors of a predator that that probably was not his first occurrence. Yeah, I agree with that. I, and, I don't think that was his first occurrence. And especially that, that would have been around a time where we believe that he would have been molesting his little brother as well. Yeah. You know, later, so... When McFadden steals the money from his grandfather, so this is around 2002, he would have been 19 years old, he steals $64,000 from his grandfather. Now, this is somebody who he says is close to him, who he looks up to, you know, talked really well about his grandfather and grandmother, and, you know, he stole $64,000 from him. And why? One of the things in my research on sexual predators, uh, one of the things that I found is that typically... Sex offenders who have offended at a young age have a tendency to have low levels of attachments to fathers and father figures. And so that kind of plays into McFadden's burglary of his grandfather's money. Like, I think he wanted to have a connection, but I don't think that he was able to have that close of a connection with his grandfather. Yeah. When you look at McFadden's childhood, his life as an early perpetrator there's a challenge with his ability to learn. So there's a learning disability. I don't know if that's ADHD or if that's, I don't know if he was having, if he was dyslexic. I don't know anything about his mental state or his learning capacity at that age. What I do know is that he was 12 in the fifth grade. I do know that he didn't make it past the ninth grade. There was a propensity for violence and sexual deviance at an early age. The earliest reported record that we have is when he was 16. Early drug use. Um, I know that he never liked school. I know that he dropped out fairly young. I want to say that he made it to high school to be freshman. I can't say that with 100% certainty. If he didn't make it to freshman year, it probably would have been eighth grade. I kind of gathered in the things that he would say and talk about, about his relationship with his brother and growing up, that they grew up very poor and they didn't have a lot of money. Oftentimes might be hard to eat or find food to eat. And LaDonna is a single mom. So she would have to work. And being that Jesse was older, I think a lot of times he was probably, I mean, the other main caregiver for Cody. 
I know that they lived in a trailer and it had dirt floors. That was in bad shape. All of those things combined, plus the fact that Jesse was always rebellious and would act out in school. And I know he started using drugs very early on in his childhood. All of those things contributed to him, of course, you know, not doing well in school and not wanting to be there, eventually just, just giving up on it. He didn't talk much about school. I know that he didn't go very often, but as far as memories in school, we didn't discuss that very often. Do you think school was kind of a hard thing for him to talk about since he didn't like it? It's normal to grow up and for those first 18 years of your life, school is normal and it's a very big part of your life. And it's a large portion of pretty much all of your experiences up to that point. It just seemed to me like he didn't have that experience. Yeah. It was not a large portion of his life. I figured that he really didn't go to school very much. I mean, if you if you drop out before you finish the ninth grade, you can only imagine all of the years prior to that, how school was for that sort of person if they barely even made it to high school. Around the time Jesse would have been 16, he was already making adult choices. At that point, I know that Jesse told me that he was using methamphetamine. I'm sure he used it up until the point in which he was arrested for the rape. Not only was he using it, he was also manufacturing it. So he was a drug dealer at 16. He talks about being into methamphetamines very early um, and other drugs, but that was the drug that he was, the drug that he was making. Right. So we see that his relationship with his younger brother is initially like rumors are that his little brother wants to be like his bigger brother. And so there's the opportunity to pay attention to that and feed into that and groom that in order to, to violate that child. But, you know, something that I want to point out to me that comes off as being very different between the two is that Cody finished high school. Yeah. And had a normal, like, he participated in activities. Like, he didn't have any issues in school. Not that are evident to us by way of, you know, him failing grades or him getting in trouble or him not participating in activities, like him just showing up, things of that nature. Like, he finished school, and people knew him in school. He had friends in school. He also was different from McFadden in the fact that he wasn't socially awkward. He was able to build relationships and he had friendships and things like that. But something changed in him from the time that McFadden went to prison and the time that he became an adult. Well, and I think even before that, I think that's where he had kind of the bigger um, transformation. McFadden stole the money from his grandfather in December of 2002. So in 2003 is when he sexually assaults Crystal Strong. And when that occurs, there's a specific incident that Crystal talks about that she said was very strange was when she was back at school and Cody found out about the assault. She said the way that he, like his response to her, like when he saw her again after that, wasn't like a, like, 
you're accusing my brother of something. I'm angry at you. I'm supportive of my brother or I feel bad for my brother. It was like a, I feel your pain type awkward interaction. Like, like he felt bad. And to me, that's very telling of things as well. They says young sex offenders should be viewed as having been sexually abused because typically a sex offender will have been abused at a young age. Right. It includes inappropriate exposure to sexual activities as a child. So typically when you're exposed inappropriately as a child to sex, it can cause you to be deviant in your, in your sexual fantasies and in your sexual development. Older children who are sexually abused have a high propensity to sexually abuse younger siblings. Also, sex offenders who have offended at a young age have a tendency to have low levels of attachments to fathers and father figures. We just talked about that. So I, I think those all kind of play into who Jesse is and what went into making him a sexual predator. Right. And one of the things I think is good to look at as well is the fact that the property that they lived on, so they lived in a trailer, and that trailer was just barely over a 1,000 square feet. And so that's pretty small. And if you think about if his mom has been coming in and out, the likelihood that they would have heard or seen something would be a bit higher in a place that's that small. I would say that there's a pretty good likelihood that they probably heard and saw some things at a young age. Then when we look at the development of Jesse McFadden from his first crimes, right, which started off very, I would say, nonviolent very innocent, was like driving without a license or driving without insurance, whatever it was. There was a, uh, a charge of underage drinking, which we later learned was with someone who was underage, which was to become his wife. Did he ever talk about being married? Yes, he did. Um, I knew her name, you know, her full name. He showed me pictures of her. She, so when you referred to the underage drinking, you said that he was arrested for, yeah. that would have been for her and her friends because uh, she was younger than he was. I believe at the time of them being married, I know she was under 18 because her parents had to give consent for him to marry her. I want to say she was when they first started dating, 15, 16, 17, that was probably the span of, you know, around in that uh, age frame that she would have been dating and then married him. That eventually gravitates to the charge of grand larceny. Now, we know for a fact from the time that Jesse was 16 to the time that he robbed the $64,000 from his grandfather that he was addicted to drugs. Right. And he didn't have a job. So, which means during that time, he was committing other crimes. He was selling drugs. He might have been burglarizing. He might have been doing other things like that. So, so I'm, I'm trying to paint the picture of the escalation of crimes that, that he's committing as he's going from being a 16-year-old who's accused of assaulting a kid on a bus to being this 19-year-old who now sexually assaults a 16-year-old. And something I think that's very important to talk about is Crystal's assault. And the reason is because when there's a sexual predator, typically their behaviors are very similar in their assaults, very similar in their violent natures. And so when he sexually assaulted Crystal, 
He pushed his way through her door. He covered her face with what she believes was a sock or cloth or something. She didn't know at the time that she had been drugged. This was not something that she found out until recently when she was reviewing her records with us when we pulled her records. So there more than likely was probably something in that cloth that he was putting over her face. But he was very violent with her and very controlling with her during the incident. And he got her to the bed. He tied her to the bed. And the assault was very violent. So violent that when she was able to escape and she's in the mindset, she's in a fight or flight mindset thinking that he's going to kill her because he's threatening to kill her. And he's pacing back and forth after he's already told her to go clean up and then told her to go wash their clothes. Now, that's behavior of somebody who's already done this before. That's not behavior of somebody who has just committed an act like this for the very first time. So in those moments, she finds a way to escape. But he was so violent with the assault with her that the doctors told her that she would never be able to have children. So I bring that up because... After he assaults Crystal, that particular crime didn't take very long because at this point, because he's assaulted Crystal, which I don't know why they hadn't done it previously, but it had been almost almost seven months since he was convicted for the grand larceny charge, which was for the theft from his grandfather. And because this was a violation of his probation, they accelerated it because what they had done was... They had done a, a deal where basically they say, hey, we're not going to send you to prison for this so long as you follow these things while you're on probation. He didn't do any of them, not for almost seven months when she was assaulted. And even though he hadn't done any of them, and even though he had been pulled over and arrested already, and somehow those things were dismissed and not viewed as, which they should have been, as a violation of his probation, he went on to assault her. And you know, something that's really sad is that as a parent... So we know psychologically that there's a lot of help that you can give somebody when they're at a younger age that is extremely impactful for who they will become as an adult. And had he have gotten help at a younger age, there could be a possibility that he wouldn't have turned into the monster that he did. Yeah. But it was covered up, which that is going to give a person a sense of empowerment because every time you get away with something small, you go bigger and bigger and bigger. You start to feel powerful. Like I can do anything and I'm untouchable and nobody's gonna, you know, nothing's gonna happen to me. I'm good at this. When we're looking at the trail of terror and where that begins, we understand that it begins with the sixth grader, the assault of the sixth grader. Now we probably believe that it could probably have started with Cody McFadden and the sixth grader. Then we see it with Stephanie McFadden. We know from a conversation with Caitlin that Stephanie McFadden was underage when they got married. Stephanie's parents had to give permission for them to get married. So again, we see a propensity for a particular age group that he's kind of attracted to. And it happens to be in the 15 to 16 age range. This is what we call sexual preference for children. So he's got a sexual preference for children. So he's, by definition, he's a pedophile. And a lot of people sometimes assume that because somebody is in a relationship, especially in a relationship of similar age or 
gender, you know, whatever the case may be, that they're less likely to offend. And for a predator, that is not the case. And that's just like with serial killers. You know, you have a serial killer who's married and has a family and they don't kill their family, but they're killing other people. Right. So it's the same thing with the sexual predator as well. And what's interesting is that during these different instances where we see where he's doing things, he always has somebody at the time that he's doing these things. What's interesting and what I'd like to share is that one of the trends of sexual predators is to get into relationships with people in order to access their social circle. So, for example, when a predator wants to abuse children, they'll get into relationships with people that have children in order to access the children. And typically they'll have a hard time performing sexual activities with their partner unless there's some type of role playing that has to do with that fantasy that they're into. I say that because I think even the marriage with Stephanie was part of his networking. And we've all learned now over the multiple podcasts that we listened to, one of McFadden's MOs was to choose someone to get in and then from that person reach out and like a spider web to their network and then continue to victimize around that particular victim. He did it every single time. And even with, so even with Crystal Strong in her case, Crystal Strong had some friends when she was younger that were being raised by their grandparents. And even though she was not friends with McFadden, he accessed her through those friends of hers. And in fact, one of the sisters told her that he actually walked six miles to her home to assault her. Six miles. And one of the things that I want to point out, and one of the comments that that Crystal had made that kind of stands out to me now, when I was researching signs of a sexual predator, one of the things that I found was a propensity to manipulative language, insulting or mocking language towards potential or actualized victims. And if you recall in our interview with Crystal, one of the things that he used to say, he used to call her hatchback butt or something like that. And she said, I never really understood what that was about. But that was his his mocking behavior. And it was sexualized. If you think about what he was right, referencing, it was. it was sexualized. It was sexualized comment. And it eventually gravitated towards a sexual assault. And during that time, not only was he married to a girl who was underage when they got married, but he also had a girlfriend who was the old Holly. Who was also probably underage. Who was also probably underage as well. Yeah, because they were friends. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And then the the next victim profile, obviously McFadden's grandfather. And I think that's important because his grandfather was the only father figure that he actually had in his life. And the fact that he was able to rob his grandfather really points to the fact that he didn't really have a strong bond with his grandfather. He may have respected him. He may have feared him. And he may have looked at him as as a potential father figure, but there was no bond. And you know that because... The grandfather presses charges on his dumb butt. <laughs> well, it's kind of hard not to when it's $68,000. I don't know. It's your kid. <laughs> Think about that. Yeah. If you have a really close relationship with your son or your grandson or whatever, and he does something deviant, typically what you'll do is you'll handle it in-house. You're not going to call the police. You're going to handle it in-house. Hey, you're going to work this off. You're going to you know, do whatever you need to do. You're going to owe me this time or this money. But the fact that he files charges against him to put him in jail means... They don't have that bond. The other thing is this, is he was never listed as a visitor on his prison logs. No. He asserts that they had this relationship and he loves his grandfather, but 
he was never listed on his list as a person to visit. No. Then you have Crystal Strong, which we already know the connection, how he got to, how they got connected to Crystal. Then we have Caitlin Bab, which he, again, networks through someone else. That was uh, Shannon, the person who owned the phone before Caitlin. That was the connection. And what do we know about Shannon? Honestly, for sure, there's not a whole lot that we know about her. And, well, when I looked up the phone number, one of the things that came up was quite possibly um, some type of escort service. But with that phone number having been given to her so long ago, so you're talking about, you know, because before Caitlin had the phone, there could be a possibility that that phone number was connected to somebody else. Yeah. But that's just something interesting given, obviously, his history. So it wouldn't be surprising. She was somebody that Jesse knew. He was trying to reach out to her. Right. Got it. Did you get a lot of phone calls and messages for her pretty frequently, like during probably the first year that you had it? Uh, Tons. And that's the only reason why I responded to him. It's so weird to think about now. But, yes, I would get multiple calls daily asking for Shannon and I would just let it ring. I was used to it at this point. You know, I'd just let it ring. I'd go to voicemail, listen to the voicemail. Hey, Shannon, this is, you know, the companies like Rent a Center get uh, calls about like payments for her washer and dryer, stuff about her electric bill. So uh, Shannon wasn't yeah. dead. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's a lot of people, money, <laughs> friends, family, tons of text messages and phone calls. And so this night it was, I also think a reason why I responded was because it was late and I was annoyed. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I had just gotten to the point where I was receiving so many all of the time. And then I'm like, all right, it's like 10 o'clock at night and someone, I don't know who they are is reaching out to me. So I just responded and honestly, I believe I responded because I was intending to ask him questions on who she was. <laughs> because I wanted to know. Because she's in here. debt. I need to find her because I'm getting all the calls. <laughs> right. You know, I was just, it was just had gotten ridiculous. And so I was planning on asking him questions <laughs> about who she was. When he got to Caitlin, then he got to Caitlin's friend. And then, of course, Holly who and the kids. Who we know who we know that Caitlin's friend ended up sending him some stuff as well. Absolutely. Then he connects with James Fleming in prison. And through James, he connects to Holly. And through Holly, he connects to the kids. And from the kids, he connects to the Websters and the Brewers. And other kids. And other kids. Yep. That's true. It is definitely his profile to find one person and then from that one person spread his, his virus. Right. What can we predict based off that pattern? We know that there's never just going to be one. No. There's going to be a web of people that he has been terrorizing. Yeah. And his behavior and how he terrorizes them is extremely similar in every single case. Yeah. The things he says, the things he does, how he controls, all of those things are almost just 100% identical. And the more he does it, the better he gets at it. That's true. He even boasts about it. He boasts about his ability to get over on people. Yeah. Even from prison. There is a call that he recorded in prison where he's getting information from somebody 
and he's not the person who should be getting the information. Welcome to Alliance Business Services, an NRG company for assistance with the home you live in. Press 3. I told you she'd send it. All right, be quiet. Put it on mute. Thank you for holding. This is Blanca. How can I assist you today? What, what's your name? Blanca. Blanca. Hey, uh, I'm calling about the bill. Um, we're trying to find out if we're the contract or not. Uh, we don't know. Okay, so I'll be more than happy to assist you with that. Can you just provide me with your account number, please? The account number? Uh, Rosa, I've got a, a number she wrote down for me. Maybe that's the invoice number because it's too much numbers. Are you the account holder or is your wife? Yes. Okay. I believe the bill come under Rosa. Okay, so if it's under her name, um, we're going to need her social or driver's license number. Why do we need social? I don't want to sign up for anything. I just need to know the, if it's contract or not. That's private information I don't want to give. I think I found it. Um, the service address is 729 Carn Street, Kennedy, Texas, 78119. So I want to talk about the difference between a what we're calling a preferential child molester, which is a pedophile. A preferential child molester is someone who prefers children. And a situational child molester, which is someone who may not prefer children, but may still abuse a child because of the situation they're in. And... The differences between a preferential child molester, which is the textbook definition of a pedophile, and a child molester, which is really not a pedophile because they don't have an attraction to children. They just situationally take advantage of whoever they're able to victimize at the moment. For someone to be identified as a pedophile, typically there is a sexual preference for children, which means they have a particular age group that they're attracted to, and that's who they target that particular age group. We know in McFadden's case, it's that 13, 14, 15, that young teenage group is where he kind of focuses on. We know that it's associated with erotic imagery of children because that's part of their fantasy. Typically someone who's a pedophile is going to have explicit videos and pictures and images of children and children erotica where a situational child molester would not have that. Right. There's typically an age and a gender preference and I found this very interesting, is typically most pedophiles prefer boys for some reason. Don't know why. But that's one of the things that I found in my research. Typically, they have a very large number of victims. That really piqued my curiosity because we still haven't heard of other victims coming out from Jesse Lee McFadden. And I know there's other victims out there. Before he went to prison and after he got out of prison. Oh, 100%. We're still diving deep into trying to figure out where these other victims are. Typically, with a, a pedophile, it begins in their early adolescence, which we know with McFadden, that presented itself. It did. And also, one thing that I found very interesting is that there are often frequent moves associated with a pedophile in order to avoid suspicion or avoid repercussions to something that they got caught. And we know for a fact that Jesse Lee McFadden bounced around between Oklahoma and Kansas. Like, he moved a lot. And something tells me that those bounces had to do with every time something occurred, I think LaDonna was like, hey, you're going to Kansas. Yeah. And his grandmother lived in Kansas even from after he was born to when he went to prison. She was still in Kansas. 
So I think that he was bouncing back and forth between his grandmother's house and his mom's. Yeah. In between those times, we can assume that there were assaults happening. Right. There are different types of pedophiles. Some of them can be the seducer. They're the ones that know how to manage and manipulate children. And then there's those that are socially awkward that don't know how to manipulate or manage those relationships. Those typically to be more one-offs because they're violent and there's not a lot of uh, development in that relationship. But McFadden seems to be the more of the manipulative type. He tries to build a relationship with these young, young kids and he does that by taking them through a seduction phase. Right. And this is important because we see this with Caitlin. You know, we, establish some form of relationship and then after about a week of talking and knowing each other that is when he told me that he was incarcerated and what for it didn't end then i was scared and i you know had stopped talking to him i think it was for a few days and he continuously sent messages to me you know, asking me to come back. Also, I want to mention that when he told me he was incarcerated and what for, that is also when he went into his version of what happened. Right. After that conversation ended, and then the point in time in which I stopped communication with the intentions of stopping it completely, you know, he was texting whenever he could. <laughs> trying to reassure me, trying to comfort me, saying things that were sweet. You are the most you know, kind-hearted, loving, sweet person I've ever met. I don't want to lose you. <sighs> you know, things as a 16-year-old, nobody had ever said those things to me right. before. Even a majority of the sexual stuff, I mean, that was all, <laughs> those were my first experiences. Right. Being feeling loved by a man and also hearing those sorts of things and engaging in those sorts of things. This was my first ever interaction with, with all of those things. Right. So I, I eventually gave in and just, I, I continued to communicate with him. So this is where we really see how he operates and how he develops the relationship in order to be able to sexually abuse these children. We talk about the seduction phase, and I bring up Caitlin because we see it in his relationship with Caitlin. We see the seduction phase happen in real life, and she talks about it. He starts off by showering her with praise and admiration, and, and then there's the, now give me what I want. And, and he was doing the same thing, so there's an incident that he had in prison prior to Caitlin's incident, also with the phone, mm -hmm. where the girl had been talking to him for a few months. And this is very similar to Caitlin's story. And what I found interesting is that he made a change when he went into his grooming with Caitlin. Mm -hmm. And that big change had to do with how he went about letting the person know that he was in prison. Ah. Because in that first incident, they were going back and forth together. She had been talking to him for a few months. Everything's going great. She doesn't know he's in prison. And then she had been sending him pictures and everything. And when she gets a picture from him, she's like, this looks like he's in prison. So she ends up finding out, yes, he's in prison. She ends up finding out, and she's scared at this point 
So she gets more and more scared and she figures out what prison he's at. He talks about the different times that they do their checks. So he's basically letting her know like, hey, I'm, I'm getting away with this. So she ends up contacting the prison and saying, hey, he's been contacting me and I've told him to stop. So before she even contacted the prison, she had gotten scared and was like, stop contacting me. Like, I don't want anything to do with you. You're in prison. I don't want anything to do with you. And guess what he did? He hacked her email account. He hacked her friend's email accounts and he started reaching out to everybody who she had in her network. Wow. And guess what ODOC did about it? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Wow. In fact, the girl was so bothered that she said, can you guys let me know when this has been handled? Because she's scared. So not only was she scared from the beginning that he was in prison, but then she's like, he knows where I'm at. He can access my information. And they told her, well, that's not really something that we do. Like, I'll, I'll let the powers that be know that you want to be notified, but that's not typically something that we do. And they, they took no legal action, nothing. They didn't wow. go through the phone. And I 100% guarantee you that there was many young girls in there, many young girls' videos and pictures. Mm -hmm. Like, that was his MO. Yeah. I bring that up because one of the things that he changed with Caitlin specifically that, that I recognize when she's telling her story is that he wouldn't send her a picture. So he learned his lesson that that's not a good way to allow for somebody to find out that you're in prison. Like right. he needed to work on his, how he introduced that if he introduced it at all. But he was still very strategic in that he developed a relationship first and had a connection and a bond. And then he was like, oh, I'm scared to tell you this. I don't want you to leave me. I really love you. But hey, by the way, I'm in prison, but I really love you. And so at that point, it was more controlled. I also want to say that in the seduction phase, it typically involves multiple victims simultaneously. And that's important because we see that over and over again. Every time he's offending, there are multiple victims at the same time. Right. There are. And typically, in most situations, those people are from the same social circle. You see it with Nasser. Larry Nasser. Nasser, where he was abusing all the little girls that were he was that he was treating. You see it in like the the Boy Scouts. You see it in the church. It's typically within the same circle. And the way that Jesse was attracting his, his circle, it was a social circle. Plus, they try to make themselves seem to be some type of authority or or have some type of importance. So yeah. even the fact of him being in prison is like making it seem like he's this tough guy. Not only that, but you think about being a child and listening to an adult. So here you have a 15, 16-year-old dealing with a 30-year-old. They're going to talk to you like you're a child. Right. And they're going to treat you like you're a child. And you're going to behave like a child because you are a child. Right. There are also pedophiles that are aroused by sadistic patterns of behavior. And those include infliction of psychological and physical pain. And we know that based off of our conversations with some of McFadden's victims, that inflicting pain was something that aroused him. So he did have a certain level of sadistic tendencies. He did it with Crystal Strong. He also did it in his... In the sexual experiences that he had with the young girls that he spoke with as well. Yeah. All of them who dated him, who have been able to speak about it, have talked about that. The violent talk, that the violent behavior, the violent sexual behavior, it was all very consistent with 100% of everybody. 
And one of the things that I found very eye-opening is that typically paraphiliacs who are sadistic in nature have a higher propensity to commit murder. 100%. And something that has been very disturbing to me in reviewing his records, which are missing a lot of stuff, and we're going to try to request those things. And we're not going to talk about this in this podcast, but there's a lot of things missing. But something that really stuck out to me was there's a particular course that he went through that they redacted. They didn't redact it everywhere. And this particular course is a course that offenders take who have severe emotional or psychological issues. And his mental health is also blacked out, which tells me he had a severe mental health issue. And it probably was related to paraphilia because it's very evident. It would have been evident to ODOC. It would have been evident to anybody who was seeing him to be talking to him. It's just like all of the signs of paraphilia he 100% has. And yeah. I, it, you know, it, it's just crazy to me. And we're going to talk about some of those uh, paraphiliac tendencies that he had. So some other paraphilic behavior besides the, the one that we're talking about with the pedophilia, there are exhibitionism and also voyeurism too. Right. And we know that that was something that he had a kind of a propensity for because it's in his conversations, in his discussions with Caitlin while he's in jail, where he wants to either watch her or he wants to be watched or, you know, sharing of the photos and things like that. There's the scatophilia, which is the obscene phone calls. And we know for a fact that this is something that he engaged with a lot of times when he was in prison with all the people that he offended against. There's zoophilia, which is sex with animals. Now, we don't know if he was involved in that or not. We don't know. We haven't heard. There's urophilia, which is urination, uh, sexual gratification from urination, I guess. Coprophilia, which is um, sexual arousal from defecation. Then there's binding or bondage, which we know that when he committed the sexual assault against Crystal, he tied her up. Now, that could have been to control her, but something tells me that that was a control thing that was something that he was into. Also, there's the infantilism, which is the baby role-playing, which we've had conversations, and that was also something that he was into, treating the women that he's with like children, calling them my little girl and my little baby and things like that, that, that type of role-playing. There's sadism, which is the infliction of pain, and we know that he was into that based off of his violent sexual conversations that he had where he was verbalizing abuse in the act of committing sexual fantasies. And then there's the necrophilia, to real or simulated death. Now, I don't know that he was involved in that. I don't know that for a fact, but that is another paraphilia. He definitely checks off a majority of those boxes, actually. Again, that's something that can be seen from when he first starts offending through prison and then after prison as well. Something that's very interesting is that a lot of people assume that a disorder would be, if you're into any of these things, that automatically means that, that you have this disorder and there's a difference. So you can have a fetish. You can like something that other people don't like that other people might think are weird and that's okay. But where it becomes a disorder is when you cannot control it. So if you have an attraction to younger people, some people can control that. Some people go get help for that. And some people never touch a young child, ever. 
But if it is uncontrollable, if you cannot keep that at bay, if you cannot keep yourself from doing whatever that thing is, then you have a psychological disorder. And probably one, more than likely one, that cannot be medicated, that you cannot just get treatment for and be released into the free world, that's not going to work. Right. You are going to continue in that behavior, and it's going to escalate. And I guess you can compare it to so, kleptomaniac. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A kleptomaniac has a disorder where they can't avoid stealing. They have to steal. And there are people who have lots of money who do it. It's not about the item that they're stealing. It's about the fact that they're addicted to taking things that don't belong to them. And so the reason why it's a disorder is because they can't stop. Now, there can be someone who doesn't have a disorder who steals for one reason or another. Maybe it's because, you know, they need something and they can't afford it. But with a disorder, you can't help it. You have to do it. So now I want to talk about the prison offenses. And the reason why this is important is because the prison offenses are a group of offenses that are tied to his paraphiliac nature all on its own. There's a life that he lives while he's in prison that's different from the life that he lived when he was outside of prison. And so let's talk about that a little bit. Something that's real interesting, and I think it's kind of important to go over all of this because it just kind of tells a story just in itself. After he's convicted for the sexual assault of Crystal Strong and they kind of merge the two cases together because he had violated his probation. So he goes to prison. So he goes to prison in January of 2004. And in February, so the first place he goes to is a kind of like an assessment center, like a, a reception and assessment center where they do things like go over an assessment of what you need education wise, treatment wise, all of those things. And then they kind of build out like a, you know, hey, these are the things that we recommend for you. Also, in talking to you, what you're wanting to achieve. And then they put this list together. So they do that. They send him to his first prison. So from there, he goes to his first prison. And um, that's the Mac H. Alford Correctional Center that they call Mac. Formerly, it was Stringtown Correctional Center in Oklahoma. So he goes there. Now, mind you, he started off going to prison in January. By February 13th, this is not long after he's gone to his first initial prison, he alleges that he's been threatened and that if he remains there, that he's going to be beaten up. And so they approve for him to be transferred. And now there's a correlation there in programs that are available at these prisons in the availability for you to be able to do certain things, whether that be contraband or whatever between these prisons. And so his moves were intentional. And I think that you will see that as, you know, as we talk about these. So his first one is in that very first year. So in February, he alleges that somebody's threatened to beat him up and you're talking about him just getting there. So he just got there and somebody's, you know, he's saying somebody threatened to beat him up. Probably his roommate. <laughs> Probably. So he has his first infraction on March 12th. And that first infraction is possession of tobacco. So he hasn't even been in prison for 60 days. And he's already got tobacco. So he gets that infraction and they end up sending him to the shoe for that. And he's supposed to be in the shoe between March 12th and March 27th of that year of 2004. Then he gets moved. He gets moved to a different prison. And this prison is Great Plains Correctional Facility, also in Oklahoma. Well, wait a minute. From March 12th to March 27th, he was in the shoe. 
And then on March 24th, he's promoted and so to what's a higher weird, point system? Yes. And what's weird is that, so this is what happened. And this is why I say it's so weird looking at his records is that, so he was supposed to be in the shoe between March 12th and March 27th based on the records that they have. Yeah. But he's moved to Great Plains Correctional Facility in the middle of that time he would have been in the shoe. Wow. So he didn't complete it. He didn't complete his time in the shoe, which was part of what his punishment was. Technically, he shouldn't have been earning any points because he was at a level one. But guess right. what? He was. They were giving him credits. So he's earning credits when he's not supposed to be. He's supposed to be in the shoe, but he's moved to another facility, which probably partly had to do with him getting in trouble, but probably also had to do somehow with, with the request of his because that seems to be very consistent. Yeah. So he's moved. And when he gets there on March 24th, he's promoted from earning credit level one to earning credit level two. And this is despite his recent prison infraction and his incomplete shoe time. And he actually, when he gets to that prison, he lies about being in the shoe because one of the questions that they ask on their paperwork is, have you been placed in solitary confinement at any point in time? And he says yes, but he says it was for administrative purposes, not because he got in trouble. Oh. So that could be part of why he was promoted. But right. come on, guys. Like... How you don't take the talking? inmate's word yeah. for it. Come on. He's an inmate. That's so, crazy. So then on April 4th, so between April 4th and April 12th of 2005, he's working as an APOD orderly. Now, the reason that I think it's important to bring up the fact that he's got these positions while he's in the prison is that part of your evaluations in prison, so they do 120-day evaluations is what's supposed to be the span. So every 120 days, once within 120 days, you're supposed to receive an evaluation. And the largest part of your evaluation has to do with your work. So a very small portion of your review has to do with like you making your bed and, and all those normal things. Mm -hmm. So this is what helps assist you in getting credits. So it was important for him to maintain a position while he was in the prison and even though he was getting in trouble he somehow always still had a position doing a job which is really strange to me yeah so that first year we know about him writing the letter to to the judge to try to get out saying he's going to change his ways and this and that and he's going to do this program and that program at the beginning of 2005 in april he attends abe which is adult basic education and Part of the desire to attend these courses isn't just that somebody suggested that you do them because you don't have a high school education, but it's because you get credits for them. You get yes. points towards getting out. You do. He attends this course. He gets 30 credits. Then he finishes this course. And right after he finishes that course, he goes into getting his GED. And he gets his GED and he gets 90 credits for that GED. Now, and at this point, something that I just want to... What happens if you go to prison and you already have your high school diploma? You don't get no points? Nope. You only get it. <laughs> you know, and something that I found interesting is that I know that he had indicated that he completed the ninth grade. He took a TABE test, and a TABE test kind of points to where you're at, you know, education-wise, and he was at about, like, 9.5, so, you know. Oh, ninth grade? Yeah, so okay. about ninth grade. I thought he was going to say third grade. On April 25th, McFadden, who's 21 at the time, he submits a request to staff and he's asking that his records be changed so that he's not housed with blacks because he has a lot of family in the Klan and he was raised around the Klan and he's a racial person. He is prejudiced. 
he wants his records changed so that he never has to be housed with any African-Americans while incarcerated. Is that common in prison, especially for uh, race segregation? Because I know they go through, now I've never been in prison, but I know that the prison system is very racially segregated. Is this common? It is. And I'm pretty sure that he could have found out from another inmate that this was a, something to do and that it would be wise to do. And the reason for that is because one of the things that they do in every assessment when you move from prison to prison is they ask if there's any type of ties to a group, whether that's oh. a gang or a racial group. And the reason for that is because the facilities are also charged with keeping inmates safe as well. And so you don't want to put somebody who's of the opposite group in a group where obviously it's going to create some type of tension. Animosity. Yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. In June of 2005, he receives his second prison infraction, which was for possession of cigarettes. He had 20 cigarettes found with tobacco. And what he received was to be bumped down to the credit level one for 60 days. Now, mind you, you're not supposed to be earning credits at level one. Right. According to what I read was supposed to be there. Yeah. Bumped to your no earning. Right. But he's still earning. But he's still earning. At one. At one. Yeah. So then in August, he again is working. So despite getting in trouble just in June and after being demoted, he again is already working again. So he's working, he's getting evaluations for that. And then in September, he attends a course and this course doesn't say how many points he got. And I know that he got a lot of points because of the amount of time that he was in it between September and December of 2005. Mm -hmm. This is the course that I believe has to do with his mental issues and whatnot. And it's called TFC. I don't know how many points he got for that, but I know that he had to have received credits for it. So there's two separate things that this could be. And we're going to confirm this. We're actually going to call the prison and confirm this. But there's one course that's called Thinking for Change. And there's another course that is called Therapeutic Foster Care. And I know that sounds strange because obviously he's not in foster care. But this is what it says. It says, is a residential behavioral management service provided in foster home settings. TFC is designed to serve children ages 3 to 18 with special psychological, social, behavioral, and emotional needs who can accept and respond to the close relationships within a family setting, but whose special needs require more intensive or therapeutic services than are found in traditional foster care. The Thinking for Change, which is a program that's offered in a lot of the prisons in Oklahoma, has to do with changing a person's social skills, their cognitive behaviors, which is something that's a very aggressive treatment that's done um, psychologically for a lot of people who are receiving therapy for things like PTSD and things of that nature. And then um, also problem solving. So basically kind of just kind of rewiring your brain in those different areas to be able to problem solve and to be able to control certain things. So either one of those courses, basically the same type of thing, different names. Um, we are going to confirm that though with the facility and just make sure that we have the right name, but it's one of those. So we won't go over all of his, you know, demotions and whatnot in talking about McFadden today, but I will say that there's quite a few. He also made a lot of bed changes, which I think are interesting. And in one year, he had over 20. Wow. That can happen for various reasons. You get an infraction. Your cellmate complains about some behavior with you, or you complain about some behavior with your cellmate. But something that's not in the records is why, and that should be in there. It should show every time there was a bed change and why, but it doesn't. 
that same year, he requests to attend his grandfather's memorial. And mind you, I said that he wasn't on his list, not for calls, not for visitors. And yeah. everyone on the sheet approved it, proved it, proved it. And then one person was like, no. You're yeah. not. I think, wasn't it the warden? I don't think it was the warden. I no? think it was somebody else. Yeah. Okay. But I know it was because uh, the nature of his offense. Right. Yeah. If you meet these criterias, it's automatic denial. And I don't even think he really cared about going to his grandfather's funeral. No. I um, think he just wanted he to just get wanted out. To be out. Yeah. yeah. And so at the end of that year, he attends a course, and it was a pretty long course from December of 2005 to March of 2006. And it's a 13-week course called Cage Your Rage. He attended this course twice during his time, which means it was necessary. He needed it. And also, it also gave him credits. So at various different times, he continues to be promoted. Every now and then you'll see a demotion. And he's even being promoted with bad behavior. And one thing I had mentioned earlier is that they do these 120-day reviews. And so this is done with whoever the case manager is for the inmate. And they sit down with the inmate. They go over their review for their job, how they were reviewed for that. They talk to them about any issues they might be having. They look at any infractions they may have. And they'll make recommendations, whether that's for promotion or whatnot. And there is certain criteria time-wise and behavior-wise that you're supposed to meet to move on to the next criteria. Something that I find interesting is that there's spans of time where, and this is more towards the end, but there's spans of time where he's receiving his 120-day review like monthly, and that makes no sense. For a system that says they're so overwhelmed, how are you doing a monthly 120-day review on one person in the prison? But they're doing it, and every time they're promoting him. So every time he's being promoted. So anytime he's below a level four, he does this monthly you know, 120-day review so that he can be promoted each month to the next level. So he attends multiple courses to gain credits. So he did the 2K Rage. He does a heavy equipment operator CDL course. He gets a license. He does two Bible courses. He gets credit for those. And then by the end of 2007, he's attending a prison rodeo. In 2008, he worked as a furniture factory. What? Yeah, he worked at a furniture factory, and he received a certificate for that as well. Or during the time frame that they're doing their on-the-job training, he received a certificate basically saying that they had certified him to do this certain position with that job that he had. And he worked there for at least a year. So in 2009, he gets his fifth prison infraction, and this is for consensual sex with another offender. When this takes place, they don't take away any points. They sent him to the shoe for 20 days, and he loses no credits whatsoever, nor does he get demoted for even an, any period of time, which, you know, it's just ridiculous. But then in 2010, he gets his sixth prison infraction, and this is also for sexual activity. And this particular inmate claimed that McFadden raped him, and he actually had a rape kit done on him, and there is no indication in his records as to them completing an investigation and how they came about deciding that this guy, in fact, wasn't raped. But he was placed in the shoe pending the investigation being complete. He was. But the investigation was never completed. They just let him out. They did. They let him out. I'm sure that they said that the investigation was completed, but there was nothing in there to indicate how they came about their decision. Not that they needed to have 100% of the details in there, but there's nothing in there to say based on whatever we validated that this person wasn't assaulted. Then 
within less than two weeks of that happening, there is, and I think that they're related, but there's battery of another person. He ends up with a black eye. Again, not much happens to him. He continues to work that year. In fact, later that year in December of um, 2010, he approved for um, what they have at JHCC, which is the Joseph Harp Correctional Center for in-cell arts and crafts. And so they do this agreement for a year and you have to be at a level four in order for you to to be eligible for this. So basically he gets supplies in his cell for him to write letters to all his victims and whatnot. So they approved it. During his time in prison, his mom meets Randy Hugel, which is who she's currently with now. Um, This is her long-term significant other. She continues to visit him while he's in prison, as does his grandmother. Like I said, his grandfather never visited him. He was never on any of the call logs for speaking to him either. Was um, Randy? He was not. No. No. So so Randy neither okay. came in to visit him as well. Now, there are so, a lot of things that are missing, like I said. So there okay. are some logs that are missing. There's actually oh, a pretty big gap. Beyond, potentially. Um, something that's interesting is they only show one attorney ever coming to visit him, which is complete not true. We know that his attorney had to have visited him. I find it kind of ironic that um, in October of 2012, he missed two to three days of work while working as a food service worker. Like, how do you miss work days when you're in jail? And you know what? You're supposed to get a bad evaluation, and he didn't. This is something that I find interesting is that where there's gaps where they don't show, so they're supposed to show a start and a stop for for every job. And if you're removed from a job, they're supposed to say why. And if you miss days, then you receive a bad evaluation. He didn't receive a bad evaluation, which means somebody got rid of those records. But it's very obvious that he was booted out of a lot of positions. And specifically with this one for missing days of work, that should have been a negative evaluation. But instead, he's kept at a level four, still earning level four credits, getting his visits, Mm -hmm. doing his arts and crafts in his cell. In 2013, he receives another prison violation. And this time it's for the possession of cell phone. This this is the first logged incident. And with this particular incident, this is the one that we had referred to. And this is the only time he lost credits. They um, deducted 365 credits at this point in time. 365? Yeah. Wow. And, but if you think about it, so the credits are on top of your earned time. Yeah. So you earn 30 days for 30 days in the month, but then you earn whatever your credits are, your daily credit earning days are. So for level four, it's like 44 credits. For a 30 days in a month, you would get 74 right. credits or 64 like credits. Time. Yeah, basically double the time. Yeah, Losing that many credits, especially when you're on a 20-year sentence or you have to serve a minimum of 85%, that's nothing. That's yeah. absolutely nothing. Yeah, And I'm sure you'll, it didn't concern You'll be in surplus of credits by the time, even if they took credits away all the time. You'd still be in surplus. And even though they took those credits away, they didn't bump him. They didn't demote him down. Mm. So they take away the credits, but then he's still earning credits at a level four. Yeah. Which is crazy. And again, that was a situation that we spoke of where he was reaching out to multiple girls and harassing multiple girls. Again, part of his pattern. Mm -hmm. In 2014, we know is when he became cellmates with um, James Fleming. And we know that during the course of him being with James Fleming, that he somehow has access, whether that's through ladders or that's through a phone, to whatever contacts James has. So, you know, later on um, in 2015, when they stop being cellmates, James receives letters or some type of communication from other women, one of which included Holly, saying that, hey, this guy from the prison has been communicating with me. Again, that's another 
display of the network that he's created, not even that are his, that are other people's. He didn't care. He, he had no preference as to whose network and it being his own network. He would network through anybody. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what he did. At one point, he goes to a minimum security prison, which is just on Correctional Center. We've been told that there was conversations at some point of him breaking out, and Justin probably would have been one of the places to do that. But he didn't stay at Justin long because he ended up getting in trouble there as well. He's then moved again. So in 2016 is when McFadden starts to communicate with Caitlin. One of the things that I just want to talk about real quick is when we spoke about the first incident where the girl figured out he was in prison because of the photo he changed that right when he went to talk to Caitlin and so when he starts communicating with Caitlin he works that situation a little bit different so he slowly kind of grooms her he's a little bit slower and a little bit more deliberate with how he went about that something that's very disturbing is it's very apparent that he was sharing photos and videos and the reason that I say this is because One of the things that Caitlin talks about is about seeing pictures and stuff of the other girls. So we know that he wasn't just hanging on to those pictures. And I'm pretty sure that when he was sharing a phone with anybody else, I'm pretty sure that he had access to their pictures and videos just like he did their information. Very disturbing thought. You know, during that year, we know that Caitlin's grandparents found out that was reported. And then he ends up with not just the prison infraction for communicating with Caitlin, but he also ends up with a law violation when they go through the phone. However, something interesting that they did not do is that one of the DAs told Caitlin that there was multiple girls in the phone and never did the DA's office ever try to prosecute McFadden for any other girl that was in the phone or any other child that was in the phone. Disturbing. It was during 2017 So when we talk about him being in a relationship and still pursuing other people and building this network of people that he's grooming or that he's assaulting is he has 26 bed moves in the year of 2017. How do you have 26 bed moves? That means that you're moving at least twice a month. Or. Yeah. Yeah. So and that same year, guess what? He's at an earning credit level of four. So you're moving beds 26 times, but you're at an earning credit level of four. What I find interesting is that in July of 2017, he reports to ODOC that he's gay. Something that's interesting is that throughout his period of time in prison, up until the very end, he always puts on all his forms that he's gay. On every single one. He's gay, he's gay, he's gay. And then once he gets to... His last year and a half, he's now no longer gay. And all of the prisons that he was at were all male prisons. So when we talk about uh, Caden's trial, now we all are all familiar with Crystal's trial and what happens with Crystal's trial. And obviously he gets convicted. He pleads, I'm sure. He took his 20 years, didn't know he was getting the 85%. So he goes to prison for that. And it's concurrent with his grand larceny charge. We know that. Caitlin Babb's trial is different because he goes out and he gets this high-end attorney, which we're still trying to figure out who paid for. He gets this high-end attorney. In Caitlin's trial, we're constantly trying to move towards some type of resolution. 
But it looks like the legal defense for McFadden from his attorney, Don F. Baker, his strategy is to delay the trial. And in the process of delaying the trial, to attempt through multiple avenues to dissuade the witness from testifying. It's evident that that's his strategy because what you see is every time that McFadden has a conversation with Caitlin and then LaDonna has a conversation with Caitlin, then there's a continuance. It was a group effort between the attorney, LaDonna, and McFadden. Right. And if you study the timeline, what you start to realize is that whenever there was a major date coming up for the trial, what you would see is you would see first McFadden would reach out and go, Hey, boo, I'm reaching out to you because I really need your help. and I need you to go ahead and do these things for me and get rid of this trial. If Caitlin did not respond to that, then the next interaction came from LaDonna, very close to that time frame where she would say, hey, I know Jesse's getting ready you know, to go to trial. I know he's getting ready to do this and that. Um, I would really appreciate if you would do this and this and that. So she was catching it from both sides. And what really sucks for Caitlin is that as a 17-year-old, she was being managed by two grown adults. They were playing basically good cop, bad cop. That's a very effective strategy. This is what causes this trial to be pushed for five and a half years. It does. And what's interesting is that during that time frame, you know, of course, at the time, Caitlin's thinking that LaDonna's this nice person. She doesn't realize how all of those dates and everything are lining up. She doesn't realize that LaDonna is part of the grooming and no. that LaDonna's part of the badgering. How could you? In your communication with LaDonna, did you find that to be part of Jesse's manipulation? Or was his mom complicit with Jesse in the manipulation? Because I, I feel like she's an adult. She knows you're a child. She should have been saying, hey, son, this relationship right. is, you know. So I'm just curious from that perspective. Yeah. Okay. I saw both sides. You know, there was a point in our communication where she says, I know you don't understand this now, but really should be with guys your age you know and I know that she wasn't completely okay with it but he gave her no other choice other than right. to communicate with me so she kind of just did whatever he asked her to we did you know with time develop a relationship that didn't feel forced actually met her twice in person something I find interesting so you said that the first time you communicated was December 8th, 2016, right? December 8th, 2016, yes. Was she reaching out to you about something? No. He had told me to reach out to her. The reason I asked that is because it was December 6th where he receives that 10th prison violation, which was the law violation, which would have been in relation to your case. So if he's wanting to, you to talk to her two days later, he knows about this. And this has to somehow be related. Like within two days, that just seems. Yeah, um, I actually pulled up the message to see when the first message was. But yeah, December 8th, 2016, I said, Jesse wanted me to let you know that they finally took him to jail today for the phone he got caught with a while back. So you'll know where he's at. Makes sense. Because then he's moved on December 14th. So that makes sense. Her language, if you listen to the language, if you listen to the other podcasts and you listen to her language, her language is sympathetic right. and it's caring. And it's it's even, hey, you know, he was being a dumbass, so I hung up on him. I'm on your side with this. 
And so it, it is very manipulative and very strategic in how they continue to push and push and push, even to the point of getting her to sign her name on something that she didn't write and she didn't agree with and going and turning that in to the courthouse. Yeah. And you she know? wasn't even 18 when she did that. She which wasn't. is crazy to me that you can go get something notarized not being 18. When we look at the examination of the evidence, obviously Caitlin was a witness. Right. But there are other witnesses. There are other people in that phone and there are other pictures and other victims in that telephone they chose not to pursue. Right. So to me, that's a flag. Oh, 100%. And I don't know if that was intentional from the DA. 100%. Yeah. But I know for the defense, it was in their favor not to pursue any other witnesses. And they didn't have a defense other than to try to get the witness to back down because that would weaken the state's argument. Right. So not that they didn't have an argument, but it would be weaker without the witness. Right. We believe, or I believe, the potential outcome would have been that if they would have tried the case, it's very likely that McFadden would have been given 20 plus years, 20 to life. Right. Based off of it being his second occurrence, based off the fact that there, it was a child that he had been communicating with and that it wasn't his first time. And I'm sure during that trial, if it would have went to trial, which that's the direction that it was going in, if it went to trial, they would have pulled his infractions from prison and there would have been the discussion on the first cell phone incident. That would have came up into discussion. Right. During this period of time, you would think that he was fearful of getting in trouble and that he would... And again, he has a psychological disorder. You would think that you would be smart enough to stay out of trouble because you're already in trouble, right? You're trying to get out at this 85% that you know that you have to serve in Oklahoma. And no, he still is continuing to do things and get in trouble. And in fact, something that I found very interesting is that his 120-day reviews, unless they're all missing, almost none of them occurred in those last couple years after he got in trouble. And he just stayed at level four. And yeah. even during periods of time where he's getting in trouble, there's even one period of time where he's in the shoe for a long time. Yeah. No indication as to why. Wow. So he definitely was in big trouble to have been in the shoe. Why was he in the shoe? Right. You know, and there's no indication as to why. So he's continuing down the same path that he has began. Yeah. And he's not getting in trouble for it. So he's continuing to feel more and more empowered at this point in time to continue to do what it is that he wants to do. Yeah. One of the things that we find with, with sexual predators is that they have a tendency to blame the victim whenever they get caught. When you corner a sexual predator, typically what they try to do is they try to blame the victim. In, in situations where it's really small children, they're like, oh, they were being overly affectionate. You know, they were showing me this, you know, this affection. They caused this. In McFadden's situation with Caitlin, what he says is, oh, you pursued me. You're the one who were wrong. You showed me attention. His defense was going to be, if we went to court, it was going to be, well, she pursued me. I didn't pursue her. She sent me these photos. I just responded in, in response to her pursuing me. I wasn't the aggressor. She was the aggressor against me. And even with that, beyond all of the victims already that we know, he also was communicating with staff yeah. in the prison that he had gotten in trouble for as well. So right. for having inappropriate relationships with staff members. Yeah. So it wasn't even just people on the phone or other inmates. It was also, it was everybody. He didn't care. He didn't have a <laughs> one type. It was everybody, anybody, right. whoever he could reach. Yeah. The outcome, obviously we know what the outcome was. 
But when we try to point a finger, it's obvious that the finger lays on two organizations from my perspective. And Crystal, you can tell me if you have a different perspective. But to me, it seems like the failures, the major failures were the Department of Corrections with the mismanagement of, of McFadden as an inmate. And then the second one was the management of the case by the courthouse because they allowed this case to continuously get moved further and further down the road. After five and a half years, at what point as a judge do you not go back and go, hey, this needs to be tried. We cannot push this any further. So to me, those two things, if they would have happened the way that they were supposed to, then McFadden would have never been on the, on the streets. He never would have been able to victimize anybody else. But because those two organizations failed, it allowed that monster get, to get back out. I think it started with LaDonna because LaDonna assisted him. She's part of it. Yeah, she was part 100%. of the monster. Then I think ODOC failed. So yeah. the Department of Corrections failed because they were very aware of who this person was. They were very aware of who the person was in prison and they took no actions to prevent him from getting out. As a matter of fact, they helped him get out by yeah. giving him credits when he wasn't supposed to have credits by right. not removing his credits. And one thing that's missing in his records is also there is a document that every type of infraction type thing would be listed on even if it wasn't considered an infraction and that is not in his records and it should oh, be yeah. so and i'm pretty sure that that's pretty lengthy but then in addition to odoc when you're going through a case there should be a requirement that you cannot be released from prison if you have a pending case especially when it was pending years before you you're supposed allowed to be released yeah there should be a hey look you're not going to be able to get out it doesn't matter if your attorney thinks that you're innocent. If you have court, then you need to sign some waiver and get your stuff done because you're not going to get out while you have an active case. I mean, yeah. that just really makes sense. But then for the justice system, the DA has a responsibility to pursue prosecution for things that they know to have occurred. So the other people on the phone, that's a failure on the DA. Yeah. The judge, it's a failure on the judge to continually allow for these continuances. Yeah. There is no reason for it. Yeah. None whatsoever. And, and so when we start talking about corruption, when we start looking at corruption and corrupt activities, we spoke about the numbers in terms of Oklahoma as a state in terms of corruption in the U.S. We see where they're at almost in the top 15, right? Where is this corruption happening at? It's happening at the, at the Department of Corrections, the local police department, even to the DA's office. Because there's no way that all of this could be coincidental. It's impossible for the stars to align perfectly for McFadden and for him to be able to get out. These had to be deliberate actions. They had to collude together to allow this to happen. Who was driving the train? I want to say it's Don Baker. I think he was the orchestrator of the whole thing. The, he had the political connections. You know something that's interesting? Is that Baker was selected by President Roosevelt to be an attorney at that level. Basically a, a more prestigious role than just a federal prosecutor. But also during that same time frame, Senator Stipe had a relationship as well. And I believe that Senator Stipe knew Baker. So I believe that there is a connection there. Stipe knew Baker and McFadden is related to Stipe. Yes. Coincidence? Not a coincidence. Can't be. It can't also be. something interesting is that $68,000... There was a financial incident with Stipe very close around the time where that money was stolen. Wow. That's very interesting. Yeah. 
very interesting. Some pretty serious stuff happened during that time frame as well. In our hunt for justice, as we're looking at this case, and we already know about the initial prison sentence of 20 years, we already know about that and his 85%. We already know about his premature release from prison and the fact that he got out with no probation, no parole, just free man walking with a pending case. The post-management as a sex offender of McFadden was also completely jacked up. There was no oversight. Even at the point that he finally checked in, he had written before he even got out of prison, he had written down the Holly address. So he had every intention of living there with those kids before married. And I know he did. But sorry, when Holly got divorced in order for them to get married, obviously that had to happen in order for them to get married. Instead of her filing in Oklahoma, the divorce was filed in Arkansas. And the reason, and if you look at her paperwork, even though it says that it's that it's Joe Guest that's filing for the divorce, it's all in her handwriting. It's not in his handwriting. So she filled out all the paperwork. The reason that she would have chosen to do it in Arkansas is because Arkansas, you can get divorced same day. There's no waiting period. In Oklahoma, there's a waiting period of six months. So they didn't want to wait the six months. So they wanted, and they wanted to be able to get divorced and get married as quickly as possible. And they did that. And the day before they even got married, he's already submitting paperwork for his new address so that he can be legal being in the home. One, it tells you that Holly wasn't an idiot. She knew enough to research to figure out how to get out of the marriage in a short amount of time and how to do that. I'm sure he knew too. Yeah, I'm sure he did. And I'm sure that LaDonna was a big part of that as well. I even believe she probably paid for the divorce, if I had to guess. So that tells me that this was a collusion. But it also tells me, what it tells me about Holly is that Holly's not an idiot. Holly knows how to research that. She understood how to do some research to figure out what Jesse was in prison for. And I believe that she knew what Jesse was in prison for because... When her family confronts her about it and they say, hey, what's going on with this? Why is this sex offender around our grandchildren? Holly chose to say, I've already addressed it. I've already talked about it. Don't approach him. Don't talk to him about it. He's extremely sensitive to it. She blocked as opposed to engaging in and doing something about the situation. She blocked her family. So, so that tells me that Holly had some inclination as to what was going on and, and, what, and what he was about. Now, whether she knew what was happening or what was going to happen, I don't know. But evidence points to the fact that she wasn't completely in the dark on what was going on. We all know what happens with the crime on May 1st and the outcome and the aftermath of that. The tragic event where Jesse McFadden murdered five innocent children, Holly and himself. When we start looking at the autopsies, so we haven't seen all of the autopsies. From the ones that we have seen, it paints a partial picture. What does that picture tell us? I know that everybody kind of wants to have an idea of what happened. And obviously, without us having all of the information, we can't paint a full picture for you. But what we can tell you is that 100% his behavior was the same as it was with Crystal Strong. The drugs. I don't know why they didn't test for some of the drugs that they should have. I believe with 100% certainty that they all had to have drugs in their system, every single one of them. One of the family members who went in the home said that the home smelled like meth. Yeah. And pictures and videos you can see. 
some of the drugs that you felt like they should have tested for was THC because that was found in the home. Yes. GHB. And the problem with GHB is that it can metabolize in the body so quickly that that would have had to have been something that law enforcement said, hey, you guys need to test for this. And we already know that they are lacking. So, yeah. So specifically with the autopsies, the picture that I do want to paint for you is this. So there's a couple of different scenarios based on the fact that they found only four casings. We know that they found Holly, McFadden, Tiffany, and Michael in the same area together. We know that they found Ivy, Brittany, and Riley in the same area spread apart. They were found a little bit further from the house and they were found a little bit spread apart, but close enough to where they, they found them pretty much all at the same time. And then we know that they found four casings. And they only found four casings, so it makes you wonder, where did they find the four casings? Well, we know one casing they found was at the suicide location right. of McFadden. And we know that there's three gunshot wounds between the three girls that were found together. So is that the scenario? Or is the scenario that the three bullets that were fired at Holly and the one bullet that McFadden fired at himself were found in the same area. One casing was found where Jesse was at. That's a definite. Those three other additional casings, we don't know if it was from the other girls or Holly. And if they were found where Jesse was at, then we can have more certainty that Jesse and Holly would have been the last people alive before Jesse committed suicide. Yes. I, something that I can tell you about the autopsies is this. I've seen Holly's. I've seen Jesse's. And Jesse didn't get a full autopsy, by the way. And he should have, but he didn't get a full autopsy. The condition of Holly's body is worse than one of the children's autopsies that we saw. What that says is that she was alive longer than the child's autopsy that we saw. Potentially. There's a high probability. Very high probability. Yeah, there's a high probability that she was alive Longer than one of the children. Yes. And so I just want to throw this out there for you guys because I really, our goal is not to choose a side. Our goal is to uncover the truth and to put it out there. So we're not hoping that one side versus the other side is is responsible or, you know, we think that this person should have done this. That's That's not our goal in all of this. So... I'm saying that because as I tell you guys this, I would like for you guys to keep an open mind in looking at this. So whether you're a parent or not, I want you to think about knowing that children are in danger and how you're going to respond. The marks that Holly has on her body do not indicate she fought. She doesn't have defensive wounds. No, none. The few markings that she does have are more consistent with scratches, not even so much dragging due to her size. More than likely, she wasn't drug across the ground because she would have had more markings than she had. And this is me speaking without seeing the condition of her body and the autopsy reports. Honestly, they're very different from each other. Even in the measurements that they gave, one did centimeters, one did inches. Like it was like they were done at different medical examiner's offices. Completely strange. But regardless... In the details that were provided in these autopsies, it does not paint a picture that Holly was fighting for her life or anybody else's life. There is a, a theory that potentially 
Holly was killed first. And that would indicate why she wouldn't have any defensive wounds. What is your thought on that theory? If that occurred, and that very well could be, I can't imagine that you would go without a fight. I can't imagine that you would stand out in a field and allow yourself to be shot knowing that your children are in the house or that other kids are in the house. Like, I, I don't see any way, shape, or form how you're able to do that, whether you're a parent or not, just knowing that there's kids that in danger. Because obviously, if somebody's trying to kill you, everybody else in that home is in danger. Okay, so the theory is that Holly, Michael, and Riley were all killed before the Saturday ex excursion. That's kind of a theory that's been floating around. Yes. And if that was the case, then the condition of the autopsies, the condition of the body when they conducted the autopsy would indicate that Michael and Riley and Holly would all be of the same level of decomposition. Yes. Okay. And there are some things that play into the decomposition of somebody's body and whether or not it can be quicker or slower. Some of those things have to deal with the temperature, the humidity, your body fat content, where the body's laying. So if the body's in water versus out of water, all of those different things can play into it. But when you're dealing with a very short time span of knowing that people were killed in a particular time span and also knowing that there wasn't high heat, there shouldn't be such a rapid acceleration that you're going to see somebody who was killed earlier with not as bad of a state as somebody who was killed later. So that also plays into whether or not those theories are valid as well. Right. In order to prove or disprove that, then all you would need to do is see the other kids' autopsies, and it would show that they had less decomposition than the, those original three based off that theory. Right. And the other thing, too, is this, is that it's hard to believe that you would leave the person alive longer who would be your person expected to fight the most, an adult, an, a larger person. So if you're planning on killing everybody and you're planning on committing all these heinous acts, if that person isn't in on it, that's a liability that you're going to get rid of. There is a theory that he could have kept her alive to the end, tied up, but it doesn't make sense why you would do that. It's not logical. Right. It's not yeah. logical. Now, could he have put her in the big freezer that was in the home and kept her there out of sight from everybody? Well, I think if you did that, the body would show signs of freezing because it'd have freezer burn. It would have icicles in the bloodstream. Like there's all kinds of different things that would, that would yeah, present. They the definitely, autopsy. yeah. And they definitely would have, well, I say would have, should have indicated that on the autopsy if that yeah. were the case. Yeah. So I don't believe that that's a possibility. And so something tells me that where those four casings were found is three next to Holly and one next to McFadden. Yeah. And I, I think it'll all just be theories until we're able to assess and analyze the other autopsies to really make a determination on time of death on everybody. Because right now we just got a partial picture. You just got one right. perspective of it based off of half of the autopsies. Right. So it really doesn't give you the ability to really paint a full picture to better fully understand. Because you need to compare them to those three that we know were alive on Saturday because we've seen them on video. Right. We've had some people ask us specifically about the crime scene when it comes to investigators showing up and finding bodies and why they didn't enter the house. And I actually even saw a Facebook thread where one of the officers made a comment about how the crime scene was outside. So the house wasn't considered a crime scene. So the property <laughs> is all one property. <laughs> 
And therefore, that entire area is a crime scene. So I don't know where he got his investigator knowledge. Yeah. But that's inaccurate. It wasn't CSI. <laughs> so if he would have watched CSI, he would have got it right. He would have known better. Yeah. Um, but I bring that up because I know some people think, you know, well, how could they possibly have not have gone in there? The other thing, too, is that you are not supposed to make assumptions when you show up to a crime scene about what's occurred. You know, there's been instances where somebody stood in front of somebody and said, kill yourself. So you can't show up to a scene and say, oh, it's a murder-suicide, guys, you know, case over, you know, open shut. That's not the way that it works. Same with, with an active shooter. You don't show up and assume that there's only one shooter and close up shop. No, you clear the building to make sure that nobody else is in the building. And these are major defects in the investigation that cause us to then begin looking at corruption. Right. Because it's so grossly negligent. It's not even a little negligent. It's not like, oh, we missed a phone or, oh, we missed a computer. No, we missed all the computers. We missed all the phones. So at that point, you have to start looking at corruption as the root cause. There's no way these investigators could be that dumb. There's just no way. Well, Oklahoma is 48th in education and medical. So you could be that dumb, dumb and crazy. <laughs> just saying. Yeah, it's pathetic. But that warrants an investigation from the FBI. The FBI should be digging deep into what happened here because it's no coincidence they left all the evidence behind. Not just that, but there's some interesting inconsistencies as well, such as the chains and the locks. Yeah. So there's a receipt that was conveniently left out, and that receipt doesn't match any of the locks. Doesn't match the chains and the locks. So who bought the chains and the locks? Love to see that video. Um, we know that one of the police officers works at the Walmart, probably, where yes. they were purchased. Do you happen to know who bought the chains and the locks? Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And let's see if that video disappears, like the Brahms video, where the city council people were meeting for their private meeting, which is highly illegal. Yeah. That video disappeared. Let's see if the Walmart video disappears. Sure. Those are things that we're continuing to pursue and, and continuing to dig into to understand what is the level of corruption here? Is it all just coincidental? Or are there other things to, for us to uncover and, and dig up? Now, as we look at impact on families in the community, the community is devastated. The community has been devastated since day one. And they continue to fight for justice for the children because it's so easy to allow this entire case to just slip into our memory and slip into something that happened in the past and to not ever really bring true justice to these children. Yes, McFadden is dead. We understand that. But there's more to it than just McFadden. McFadden's not going to be the only monster that ODOC lets out onto the streets. And so we've got to fix this so that future monsters don't attack our families and don't attack our children. Now, looking at the aftermath and the legacy of our survivors, and not only our survivors, but also our victims, what have the effects been on our survivors and our victims? Well, you know, truthfully, right now, what I think is truly tragic is because of how this investigation has gone, I think that these guys haven't even had a time to grieve. I think that right now these families are seeking justice. They're seeking for a proper investigation to happen. And in that, they are not able to grieve. 
So I think that right now they're like in this kind of pause because they can't do that. But, you know, you think about the fact that Crystal Strong basically tried to tuck away her assault for years. People who never knew what happened to her just found out. So she's being, she's, this is a wound that never healed, that has now been picked open, that she's now having to deal with. And that can't feel good. And then you've got Caitlin Babb, who he messages right before he quite possibly takes his life. I'm pretty positive everybody was dead at the point that he messaged Caitlin. But regardless, he sends her the message that he did. And that also cannot feel good. So she's already been victimized by the state and ODOC for five and a half years. And then this is just one more thing. And then you've got the families. So now you've got the families of the children who are murdered. And you have one family who, you know, people are looking at the possibility that McFadden's wife could have played a part in this. And so they're dealing with losing their grandchildren and dealing with the possibility that their daughter or family member has lied to them and could quite possibly be involved and that can't feel good. And then they're also at the same time having to deal with the fact that they lost their grandchildren, three of their grandchildren. Right. We've been given some information that custody of the kids were not even Holly's at the time of their deaths, that it was another family member. Wow. And we haven't validated that yet. It's something that we're looking into right now. Well, potentially the kids shouldn't even been there. Yes. And that also would be something that that family is dealing with if that is, in fact, the case. And then you have the families of the two girls who were staying the night and the kids who were invited who didn't go. And they're going to have survivor's guilt. They are going to have survivor's guilt. Yes, their families are, are happy that they weren't there and, you know, thinking, hey, thank goodness, you know, my child didn't go. Absolutely. But those children are going to have some severe mental health issues that they're going to need therapy for and probably for a very long time. Right. And then for Ivy's parents and Brittany's parents, they are right now not even able to grieve because they're having to deal with the botched investigation. Yes. Even if you're not a parent, just think about these young kids who don't get to finish their lives didn't even get to reach adulthood. Yeah. Reflecting on societal impact and the implications of child molestation and sex trafficking. And we recently watched the movie, the sound of freedom. And that movie was very, very impactful in terms of the proliferation of just sexual abuse of children and just how rampant it is and how I just couldn't even believe that something like that happens in 2023. What are your thoughts on that and society's view on child trafficking and sex slavery and, and things like that? I think that we tend to think things are not as common as they are. And if you haven't seen that movie, I definitely encourage for you to go see it because it will expand your mind as to how your children can be pulled in easily how a parent can be pulled in easily to having your children trafficked. Yeah. Too often we think that we won't be touched by something because, oh, that's not going to happen to us. Like the likelihood of that not going to happen to us. You need to equip your family and your loved ones to be aware 
of these types of things so that they can protect themselves. And one thing that I think that this case has really taught everybody is if you see something, say something. It's funny because that's the same lesson that we learned with the Turpin 13 when we did the Turpin 13 case where so many people saw abuse happening and some of them even kind of recognized it for what it was, but still didn't like report it, didn't tell anybody, didn't escalate it. So definitely an issue. You know, with the Turpins, I definitely think that we've learned the same thing. A lot of times we think we don't want to get in people's business and we think that, hey, how that person chooses to do things with their family or whatever, we're going to leave them be. Or, hey, that person's just a weirdo. You know, I think that we've learned that we need to look into these things. And definitely for our children's sake, when they're going to be around somebody for long periods of time, and I know that you can't do it with 100% of everybody, but do your due diligence in you know, looking into these people who are going to be around your children. This is a great segue into prevention and lessons learned because the one thing that I think we all learned is that everyone can be a sexual predator. There's no look, there's no definition. This is a predator. This is not one. Oh, this person's married to a great woman. She's super friendly and nice. She bakes cookies. Doesn't matter. This person can still be a predator. I would 100% say that any place where your kids are going to be, especially sleeping, needs to be investigated further. Right. The other thing, too, is that, it, you know, specifically in this case, there was a lot of things that weren't available online. And there's a lot of different systems in Oklahoma that doesn't make it easy for you to find information on somebody. And that's truly tragic. That's something that yeah. needs to be fixed and fixed very quickly because it's not good for a community. No. You know? I think the other lesson that we learned is that in investigations, when an investigation is happening, and maybe it's an investigation that you're involved in or involved with, that you need to make sure that your investigation is done properly and to hold the police accountable because Justin Webster had to really go out of his way to force the police to do their job. And had he not done that, there's a tons of evidence, tons of additional material that would have never been collected and and taken upon and and osbi would have never gotten involved if it wouldn't have been for justin applying pressure and sometimes as a victim of a crime you have to force the police to do their job when you see that they're not doing it and not be afraid to escalate not be afraid to confront those police officers when they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing and they're not investigating right you know as a parent that's another thing that they're going to have to deal with as a parent you shouldn't have to go seeking evidence as a parent, you shouldn't have to find and stumble upon those things. Imagine just what they're going to have to deal with for years to come for seeing everything that they saw. They shouldn't have had to do that. And one thing that I can say, one of the, the true monsters in this whole discussion that we haven't even really applied a lot of attention to is LaDonna McFadden. And the reason why I say that is because if we look at all the victims, to include Stephanie, to include McFadden's grandfather, to include Caitlin, to include Crystal, LaDonna was a facilitator in all of those crimes in one way or another. Or even an active participant. 100% an active participant in Caitlin's case. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know there are laws that she broke. She is definitely one of the monsters in this story that 
isn't getting the amount of attention that she needs. She's as guilty as McFadden in terms of the victimization of all of these children. As we go into listener questions and final thoughts, I want to share a couple theories. I just kind of want to talk high level on some theories. You know, your, your thoughts on some theories, maybe some theories that I, that I haven't listed. One is the theory that Jesse was assaulted as a child. He was also a sexual victim. What's your thought on that? I definitely think that there's a possibility there. It could have been a family member. It could have been one of the men that was in and out of the home in McFadden's and Cody's early years. So there, those are all definitely possibilities. The second theory is that Cody McFadden was assaulted by Jesse McFadden. What's your, what's your thoughts on that theory? I 100% believe that to be the case. And I say that because of the reaction that Cody had early on with, you know, after Crystal Strong's assault. And then also the incident that took place where LaDonna requested a protective order, which is very obvious that McFadden wrote it. Um, He even says defendant, the defendant, it's in his handwriting. But regardless, that incident took place very close to the time that McFadden got out of prison. And you're talking about somebody who had been alone with somebody for years in a trailer and abused and had finally gotten away from that person. And then that person is welcomed with open arms by their mother right? at the home where Cody is living at the time. Right. So that was not going to be a happy family reunion. Right. That was 100% going to be a psychological breakdown for Cody. And I believe that it was. And it's so very unfortunate. Cody has done some things, obviously, that aren't good that we've seen and that people have put out there. And I'm definitely not giving him an excuse. I don't do that. But I can tell you that the behaviors that Cody has exhibited are all behaviors of somebody who was sexually molested as a child. Yeah. What is your thoughts on the theory that Holly was complicit in the murders? I believe that there's more pointing to the fact that Holly was complicit as opposed to not. And that's unfortunate, but I believe that to be at this point in time from the information that we have, I believe that to be a definite um, possibility. So, and, you know, already the, the things that we've, we've discussed. Also, one of the things that I kind of wanted to bring up as far as that's concerned that, that I want people to know is that they've done research on spouses or girlfriends, significant others who partake in violent crimes with the person that they're with. And one of the things that they've found is that the brain does something really crazy when a person sees that person that they love and that they adore. And it's it's the kind of making for somebody to do whatever for that person that they love. And you see that in situations like um, the killers, the Barbie and Kin killer, where the sister assisted the boyfriend in sexually assaulting and murdering her own sister that can happen i'm not going to say that that was holly's case or that somebody twisted her arm or that she was extremely manipulated i don't know what the factors are surrounding that i know what science backs and i know the facts that we currently have and things that you would expect to see of somebody who wasn't complicit we don't see that's a disturbing, but we also don't have a hundred percent of the pieces to be able to give the most educated. Yeah. Yeah. Give you know, a definitive answer, answer for that. Yeah. And that's why it's still just a theory. We don't really know. 
And then the next question is, what's your thoughts on the theory that Holly, Michael, and Riley were murdered first? I find that highly improbable, at least for Holly. And that's because we've seen her autopsy compared to um, at least one of the children's autopsies. And so I think that that's highly improbable. But is there a possibility that Michael and Riley were killed first? That's highly probable. We haven't seen all the autopsies, so we don't know that for sure. (laughs) Right. And what's your thought on the theory that Jesse may have been sexually abusing all or any one of the children prior to this taking place? I think it's a very high probability. If you look at the statistics of children being abused, a majority of children are abused in their home. That's the most likely place. And obviously we know from, you know, McFadden's history that it doesn't matter if it's a woman, a man, a boy or a girl, anybody and anything goes. So there's a very high probability. You can speculate as to whether or not Holly would have known or didn't know. Or, and there's relationships all the time that we see where the spouse or the significant other did not know that their child was being abused by the person that they're with. So that is also a possibility. But we also know from our case that we covered for the Menendez brothers that Kitty Menendez knew her husband was abusing, sexually abusing her children and stood by and did nothing. And that was part of what caused them to psychologically break. Yeah. You know, a lot of times something that really makes that that really kind of bothers me when I when I hear people's mindsets about predators is like with Nasser, with the gymnastics coach, is that. One of the girls who went and reported her assault, the person was like, come on, like, not him. He's a known him for years. Yeah. He's a doctor. He, there's no it, way he would ever yeah. do anything like this. Guys, those are predators. There's political people that are predators. There's lawyers, doctors. There's professional people who are committing these crimes. And so you can't have the mindset that, oh, this person isn't capable. Don't do it. Don't fall into that. Because it's a trap. Yes, it is a trap, and it's it's going to get somebody you care about caught up. So don't fall into that. Don't believe that. One of the methods of persuasion is authority. In the method of persuasion for authority, typically people use uniforms to convince you of who they are. And that is often what you look at when you see someone in a suit or you see someone in uh, wearing the, the collar of a priest or you see a police officer wearing a police uniform or a soldier wearing a, a military uniform. You see those uniforms and that relates to you. This person is of a certain level of authority. This person is of a certain level of trust. And so you give blindly to that authority without consciously thinking about what it is that you're doing. And I think this kind of happened with the situation with Holly and with McFadden because people saw Holly as being a good mom and they automatically assumed Jesse was also a good dad. And so we need to be, as, as, as parents and as adults, we need to be a little more conscious. And if our kids are spending any time with any other adults, and I'm guilty of this being a father, I didn't always know where my kids were and who they were with. But now seeing this happen, I was just lucky. I was lucky because this could have happened to my family because I never went and researched to see if my kids were going to be staying at a sex offender's house. I didn't know. And it's something that you just don't think about. You think, you know, people, you know, you fall into this trap of understanding and thinking, Oh, this is the friendly neighbor. This, this is the guy that always waves at me when I'm cutting the grass. His daughter's friends with my daughter. You don't know that little girl's being abused. You don't know that abuse is going to spread over into, to your family. 
It's true. Any final thoughts on this case? I would say just to do a little research, pull up sex offenders in your area, put in your address, look and see the types of people that are in your area. Do a little research on sex trafficking. Do a little research on keeping your kids safe, keeping your loved ones safe. I think that that can be helpful. There's some things that they talk about where kids are concerned, you know, some old, old mindsets of, you know, one thing is respect your elders. Not all elders are good. And our children need to know that. Our children need to know that just because somebody is a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher doesn't give them the right to touch you or talk to you any kind of way that they want. And I think it's important to, you know, they say that one big thing that you shouldn't do with your kids is in a preventative nature is not to name your kids' sexual parts, things like coin purse and whatever it is that you make up, you know, so that you don't say the word, not to do that because that is one of the, the grooming tools that's used to desensitize children as to thinking that that is a bad part or something that shouldn't be touched or something that shouldn't be done. So tell them what it's called and let them know that it's not okay for people to name their private parts, pet names, or to, and you know, sometimes we think that our kids aren't ready to hear those things or see those things or know those things. And guys, let me tell you what, if you're not discussing those things with your children, somebody else is. If you're confused about it, then go watch the movie Sound of Freedom because these kids are little, little kids. They're not 15, 16 years old. They're five, four, three. These are kids that don't know anything about sexual activity and you don't want them to learn it from a sexual predator. If I had two pieces of advice, I would say one, discuss things with your kids. Discuss reacting. Um, how do you react? What do you do if someone threatens you or, or someone threatens your family and says, if you tell someone I'm going to kill your parents or I'm going to kill your dog or whatever the whatever it is, your kids should understand that that's a feeble threat and that they should be able to still bring that to you and that you can handle that and you don't need them to protect you. A lot of times the kids think they're protecting their mom and dad from a threat. It's important for them to know that if someone says something like that to them, that they should bring it to your attention. Also, what is considered to be bad behavior. We had a, one of our former podcasts one of the comments was made was that uh, there was a child that felt something was inappropriate, but they didn't know it was inappropriate at the time. They just felt uncomfortable. It's important for kids to know that if they feel uncomfortable, it's wrong. Right. If it makes them feel uncomfortable, it doesn't need to be wrong per se. It doesn't need to be a, a sexual act for it to be inappropriate. If someone's putting you on their lap or someone's grabbing you incorrectly or someone's playing with you in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable, that needs to be reported. Not just, it doesn't just need to stop. You have to tell someone about it because some additional investigation needs to happen. That's It's really important that kids feel comfortable coming to their mother and father and knowing that they're not going to get in trouble, even if it's their fault. And what I mean by that is like saying, for example, I watched a video yesterday where a an 11 or 12-year-old kid met someone on TikTok and then went to go meet him at a house and it was a test. The parents were testing this kid to see if they were going to do what they were taught. And this kid failed, obviously, went somewhere to meet some guy that she had met online. When she got there, it was a parent that was there. And it was like, what's your problem? Even in a situation like that, the kid needs to understand that if they were to do something like that, they could come back home and tell their parent, mom, I went to go meet somebody online. I know you told me not to, but I did. And this is what happened to me. And that's important because you don't want your child to continue to be victimized. Right. The last thing that I would say is, if you see something, say something. 
If you see something, say something. In most of the cases that we've had, that we've looked at, what we found is there's always someone who said, I saw this, but I did nothing about it. So it's important. If you see something and it makes you feel uncomfortable, it's better to be wrong and to raise the flag than to be wrong and have something happen to a child that can end like this situation. Thank you guys for sharing your time with us today and listening to our theories because some of these are theories that we share. And again, our goal is not to take sides, but to put the truth out there and to help others learn about situations like this so that they can prevent these in their own lives and to know, you know, what your power is in dealing with people when things aren't going right, such as, you know, an investigation not being conducted in the manner that it should. You know, we want you to know that there's, you know, avenues available to you to assist you in dealing with a situation like that. And it's unfortunate when, as the family of a victim, where you're having to be stressed out about how the investigation's going and if it's being done right and if they're if they're looking at all the evidence and if there's a possibility that there's others out there and are those others going to be victimized before you know the investigation's complete there's so many different things that as the family of a victim or as a survivor that shouldn't be a stress for you and it's unfortunate but there are avenues that you can take even when there's corruption there's avenues that you can take and we want you guys to feel empowered to be able to do that and to know that those things are out there, to be able to take advantage of those things and to work to receive justice and to work to change a broken system. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate to contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.